This is Hans Finzel. Welcome to the Leadership Answer Man. This is a show for leaders about taking leadership to the next level. Whether you're a seasoned leader or just starting out, I promise to give you practical leadership tips that you can use this week. No matter what your leadership situation is, I can help. Remember, leaders make things happen. My passion is to help you lead more effectively. Welcome to episode 28. Hans answers your 10 thorny leadership questions. And I just want to begin by saying thank you so much to all of you who sent in some great questions. These are all real questions from real listeners. And I've decided that I'm not going to uh, mention the names of who wrote these questions because (laughs) it could come back to haunt you. You might get in trouble with your supervisor or your direct reports if for some chance they listen to these podcasts. So I'm disguising the source of the questions, but thank you so much for uh, sending them to me. I'm going to tackle them today. I've listed all 10 questions on my podcast at hansfinzel.com with a summary of the answers that I'm going to be giving you and some other uh, resources you can go to. But uh, these are great thorny questions, and I've given quite a bit of time to pondering the answer. So let's get right to it the top 10 thorny leadership questions that have been submitted to me over the last uh, couple of months on my uh, website, hansfenzel.com. Here we go. Number one from a vice president of a company. I have a good, tough leadership question for you to discuss on your podcast. How do you teach your staff personal responsibility? How do you get them to really own their positions and be proactive? Well, this is a this is a tough question. It's a really tough one because in many ways this is about genes and family of origin issues and and how a person basically uh, deals with responsibility in all aspects of life. Uh, I I have to illustrate with my own children. One of my kids told me the other day, you know, Dad, uh, the people at work are always telling me how much they appreciate my work ethic that I work hard. And and it shows, and they appreciate that. And uh, you know, Donna and I have made a lot of mistakes in parenting. We are—we're not even close to being perfect parents. But we have four adult children who are amazing kids that are all doing great in their careers, marrying amazing spouses. And and I guess one thing we did teach them is a work ethic, uh, the responsibility. It's it's hard to change that if you don't have that. But Here's some ideas. You have to coach people along. You have to be truthful. I always say truth works. So if you sense that they are not really owning those positions and they are not taking responsibility seriously, you have to coach them. Gently tell them and coach them along. You have to be honest with them about their failures in this area. You know, I observe for many of the young generation that's growing up after the baby boomers, they come from broken homes where they had to raise themselves. And often, they didn't learn some of the basic skills of responsibility in life that carries over into work. So uh, you have to coach them and teach them carefully. And and you have to ask them, are you willing to learn? If so, I'll be willing to coach you. But if, if they're just lazy uh, by habit, uh, you can't make people unlazy if they're lazy. So I would say it just depends a lot on their response when you share with them truthfully that you sense they're not really owning that responsibility as seriously as they need to. And I always like to remind people like that, you know, there's plenty of other people that would love to have your job if you're not going to take it seriously. Number two, uh, from the same vice president, I have good ideas, but when I tell the staff what they're going to do, I don't get the results I thought I'd get. What am I doing wrong? 
Well, so I'm wondering when I read that question, what you mean by you're telling them what they're going to do. Perhaps they're not owning it because they're not part of the process of coming to the decisions about the course of action. It reminds me so much of situational leadership, Ken Blanchard and company. If you just Google situational leadership, you'll find a host of great information about how you lead people according to uh, how they are wired. Uh, there are four ways of, of leading people. You By delegating, by participating, by selling, and by telling. You tell people who have the lowest motivation and the lowest skill set, and you delegate to the people that have the highest motivation and the highest skill set. Situational leadership. If there's one thing I learned is that you have to lead people differently according to their ability and their motivation. That's what situational leadership is all about. But generally, I'll say that telling people is the worst kind of leadership of the four. In my opinion, it's it's reserved for people who, again, are low motivated and low skill set. And you just say, look, <laughs> take this block and put it on top of this block, and this is going to be the result. People are much more motivated to act uh, on a course of action when they own the process, when they were part of figuring out where we're going to go and part of the decision-making process. Number three, I just listened to your most recent podcast this morning about setting goals. I think that was my New Year's uh, goal-setting podcast. Wow, great podcast. This really got me excited for the new year. I'm going to send the link for the podcast to my brother, who is in some dire need for life direction in general. Thank you for the great information and advice. I'm also in the middle of reading Steve Jobs' biography by Isaacson. Despite the great advances and the impact he made in our world, it sounds like Steve Jobs was a real jerk a lot of the times. One person quoted in the book stated that it was really tough to work for him, but they wouldn't change their experience for anything. So here's the question. Why is it, Hans, that some of the great leaders of the world have a narcissistic personality and are outright jerks to people around them? <laughs> I'm sure that they certainly don't do the great things they do uh, by politely asking. Uh, this kind of relates back to the previous question where I'm sure Stephen Jobs, his default was usually telling people, uh, but he delegated a lot. But if he didn't like something, he he had no bones about just telling people, that stinks, we're not going to do that. I try to imagine an example when Steven Spielberg directed the Indiana Jones movie. I bet you, if you ask the little people on the set, he was probably a tyrant. Well, I don't know about that, but here's my answer. The highly gifted in the world can get away with murder uh, by the very fact that they are geniuses. They find that they don't have to bother being nice like the rest of us because they are so brilliant and so smart. Just like the guy, I read that book too. Uh, highly recommend that Stephen Jobs biography. What an amazing book. And I came to the same conclusions. I would not want it. Well, I would, I would have found it very unpleasant to work for him, but I would have loved to work for him. He made so many people uh, millionaires, and not just that. He changed the world. You know, he I have on some other podcasts talked about him at length, uh, but he, uh, you know, single-handedly changed so many industries. It's just incredible. I would have loved to have been around that, let alone the fact that he made so many millionaires in the process. So I think that if you are that gifted and that brilliant, that uh, by nature you can get away with murder. 
But if you've read my book, The Top Ten Mistakes Leaders Make, I mentioned in the introduction the reason I wrote that book is that I worked for a guy who bordered on genius. He was so brilliant and so gifted. But I eventually quit that job and left because I couldn't stand to work for him. He was such a control freak, and and his genius did not excuse use that poor personality style. And eventually the thing blew up and his board asked him to, to leave. It wasn't a pretty picture, but I do think highly gifted people can get away with murder by the very fact that they're geniuses. If you have the opportunity to work for somebody like that, just buckle your seatbelt and get ready for a rough ride. But if you have that opportunity, I would say seize it because it's going to be amazing. I'm sure working for Mark Zuckerberg at Facebook is a challenge as well. I have no idea, but I know he's grown a lot in his leadership style in in recent years. Number four, do you lead creative minds the same way you lead linear thinkers? Why or why not? My answer, absolutely no. You do not lead the creative types the same way you lead linear people. Let me give you an example of two people that worked for me in my career as a CEO. They, uh, Mark and Chris. Mark was head of finance. Chris was head of communication. Now, just by the very nature of what I told you their positions are, and they're still there, and they're just awesome people, obviously, Mark, very linear uh, very non-emotive. And if I wanted to, uh, anything I did to lead Mark, he wanted data. He wanted it linear. He wanted it on paper. He wanted careful explanations. Chris, on the other hand, extremely creative type. Uh, creatives are inspired by random ideas. And so you lead people, you know, the way I led Chris was completely different than the way I led Mark. Uh, we would get together and brainstorm and I'd draw out of him exciting ideas and he would just explode with creativity. Nothing was ever put on paper. <laughs> we just challenged each other with ideas. And then I said, great, let's go for it. And he said, that's it. That's all we need for the decision. I said, that's it. Let's do it. So you lead them very differently. And again, uh, lead people the way they're wired. Linear, want it all, uh, want all the facts lined up in a neat row. Creatives are inspired just by getting together and talking. Number five, question number five. I'm answering thorny questions that you, my listeners, have sent me, and I just thank you so much for these questions. If you have an option to build a new leadership team or use the one that is already in place, what would you do? Great question, and I'm assuming you're, when you're saying one that's already in place, you're talking about whether uh, if you go into a new position of leadership, do you build a whole new team or do you take the one that you inherit? Okay, nine, here's my answer. Nine times out of 10, build a new team. Build a new team. It is tough to lead the team you inherit. I always had the most problems with loyalty with the guys I inherited. A couple of guys in particular that I inherited when I became the CEO of our international ministry. Now, these guys were older than me. They'd been around longer than me. Uh, They were so respected, uh, and they were great guys. I didn't feel I could get rid of them, but always through the years that we worked together, I sensed an underlying uh, lack of respect and loyalty. It just it was a subtle thing, but in one of the two, it was not so subtle at times. And you know, it, it took me a long time to realize in the end that some of them were um, resented the fact that they didn't get the job instead. They were older, they'd been around longer, and sometimes they, I think they thought to themselves, I deserved that job more than that young kid that they gave it to. 
all those issues, things you don't even know about, come into play when you work with people you inherit. There is history there that could really work against you. So if you work with people you inherit, you really need to pay attention to this loyalty issue. Now, one of the regrets that I would say is that I did not pay enough attention to that. And sometimes it came back to bite me because I was undermined by people who, who lacked the loyalty. I find that the people you directly recruit or that you hire are loyalty to you much more than people you inherit. So nine times out of 10, build your new team. Question number six, is it easier to make a change unbeknownst to those it affects because you can, or is it better to make changes when people know it's coming? Well, obviously, here's my answer. Always get people in the loop if you can. This is huge. Couple of quotes that I love. If I'm not in on it, I'm down on it. People need to be part of the journey of change. Another quote by Spencer Johnson, Highly, I highly recommend the book, Who Moved My Cheese? It's been around a long time. I wish I'd written that little book. It's a tiny little book. It sold millions. It made uh, Spencer Johnson a lot of cash and uh, so popular. Love it. Here's what he said. A change imposed is a change opposed. I would highly recommend you listen to my podcast number 13 and 14 on leading change. I actually spent two podcasts, part one and part two, podcast 13 and 14 on leading change. If you go to my website, hansfinzel.com, and go to the podcast tab, there's a directory of all my podcasts, and you can click on those. And uh, I talk a lot about why you need to bring people into the loop and how to bring people into the loop. Now, let me say, only in rare cases do you have to keep things behind closed doors couple of examples, major staff changes. There was a point when my board told me I had to reorganize. I had too many people reporting to me. I think I had a dozen people. And as president and CEO, they said, that's just not acceptable. People ask me all the time, what is the most number of people you should ever have reporting to you? And I think five is probably the maximum. Three to four is optimal. So I had to make a painful decision of uninviting some of the people at the table to my leadership team. That's not something I could discuss with the whole team. Uh, you know, hey, hey, imagine this. Let's get together one day. All right, today we're going to talk about which one of you guys are going to uh, stay at this table and be part of my new leadership team, and, and which of you guys are willing to uh, start reporting to one of your colleagues that you're sitting next to at this table. That's exactly what happened to me, and there's no way that I could have had that conversation openly with with, with the dozen together. So that decision had to be made privately. I, I sought the counsel of my board of directors and a, a consultant I was working with, but I had to make that decision privately. And, and honestly, when I rolled it out, feelings were hurt. There was resentment. It took some of the guys a couple of years to get over it. Uh, but that that's a great example of a decision that doesn't need to be made behind closed doors. Uh, a relocation. Uh, we relocated our office from Illinois to Colorado, uh, and that meant people's uh, jobs were at stake. Um, families were going to be unsettled. It was a very positive change, but one that had to be decided ultimately behind closed doors without an open process. Uh, the sale of a company, if you're up for sale, that's something that usually you can't discuss openly. But whenever possible, keep people in the loop. Question number seven from a missionary in Africa. I'm struggling under a working situation where my biggest issue is lack of a team. The other is having leadership that is abrasive above me. 
I can pretty much ignore the abrasiveness and the isolation from peers because I get to do what I love with the young people that I work with. But my wife can't separate the two. I'm sure this is something pastors and their wives run into all the time. I assume a pastor has the authority to protect his wife from the leadership issues of the church. <laughs> Let me just say as a parenthesis, no, I don't think so. <laughs> I think it's very, I'm not sure what you mean by that, but I think it's very hard for a pastor to or a staff member in a church to protect their spouse from leadership issues at the church. I know that I was very careful through the years uh, what I brought home to Donna, and I did not use her as a dumping ground for all the problems of the leadership in our ministry, but she could tell when, when I was down and when I was churning over big problems, and, and oftentimes she would dig it out of me. You really can't uh, completely shut the spouse off, although please don't let her be the dumping ground. And so anyway, he goes on to say, I'm, I'm still reading his question. I'm not sure we have that luxury here, and I think I know why, because I used to live overseas on a mission team, and, and you just can't hide anything from anybody because you're all just living in community together. At what point does a leader need to choose for his partner spouse over the work. Don't get me wrong. I believe we are still effective here, but her discouragement is affecting both of us. I suppose the leadership principle is not to have your wife working in the same role with you. What have you shared with pastors? Great question. I appreciate it so much. And uh, it's not a simple thing, but my, my simple answer is you always have to lean in toward your spouse. If your spouse is miserable and in this job, and especially if she's working with you in ministry and uh, she just is not getting over it, I really would uh, highly encourage you to move on to some place where you're both fulfilled and, and happy and satisfied. You know, I've seen so many people in ministry live in misery under terrible leadership situations. And for some reason, I think Christians are loyal to a fault and stay in those miserable situations longer than they should because of their loyalty to Christ and to the calling, and it all gets wrapped together. But I'd say, boy, if your spouse is miserable, get out of Dodge. Let me give you a book that I'd like to recommend, Necessary Endings by Henry Cloud. I've mentioned this book before, and I just want to mention it again, because Henry Cloud, the great psychologist, makes the point in that book that many of us are at times loyal to a fault and we don't give ourselves permission to let go and move on, in spite of the fact that we live year after year after year in a miserable situation. Necessary endings, Henry Cloud. Let go. If <laughs> I was, I'd say, if my wife ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. And, and I have seen these situations. I've lived in these situations. Life is too short. I highly recommend, even though it's going to be a lot of work, to get into a situation where you're both fulfilled. It sounds like you need a team that you can really enjoy working with, and you need a team leader that you can respect. And it sounds like you don't have either one of those. So I would, just, I would highly suggest you make a change. Number eight, from a manager. I'm a new manager for a company, and I'm trying to explain to my wife, if I'm going to climb the corporate ladder, why I need to spend so much time at the office and why I can't make the kids ball games. She does not understand how important this is to me. Wow. 
Okay, well, here's my answer. Listen to the previous podcast, episode number 27, our Valentine's special episode with Donna Finzel. I'm not saying you don't care about your marriage, but I, it sounds a little bit like you're not negotiating with your wife and you're not in partnership together with this. For me, it's about it's a negotiation. I understand uh, my uh, one of my kids that uh, works uh, for a big corporation and, and he basically has to leave the house at five in the morning and he gets home at five or six in the afternoon. And it's just the way it is at that company. But, you know, uh, they're in partnership together. And boy, he makes up for it on the weekends and, and even in the evenings. Uh, they have two children. But I know it's a partnership and it needs to be a partnership. You cannot say that your job is more important than she is. If you do, your marriage won't survive. I don't think you're saying that, but that's a little bit of how the, the question is coming across. You need to bring her in as a partner. Discuss this with her. Tell her how important it is to you and uh, show her uh, what she will get out of this and work on ways to make it work. You have to give her some concessions and say, you know, this is what will happen if I work my way up the ladder. This is going to benefit our family, our marriage. Do you agree I need to do this? You know, get her to buy into this passion with you. Don't just tell it to her. And then if she says, okay, yeah, you need to do this, then sweetheart, let's figure out some concessions and what can I do to make it up for you on the weekends, family vacations, when I am around the house, what can I do to ease the load for you? You know, in my career, I spent so much time traveling, um, probably at least a third of my time and some years a half of my time internationally. All over, I'd be gone for three weeks at a time and Donna's at home raising four children. Uh, do you think she ever got resentful about that? No, she didn't because we learned how to negotiate. Again, I I'd highly recommend you listen to my episode 27, our episode, the Valentine's special, the top 10 ways to love your wife. Great question. Hope you appreciated that answer. Okay, two more questions. Number nine, uh, here's a question from the military, and I really appreciate that. That's awesome. And I have never been in the military, but I know the military has a culture like, in some ways, like the educational world. They're very unique cultures, and it kind of relates to this question. Hi, Hans. I recently started listening to your podcast, and I find it to be a pleasure to listen to as well as being helpful. Let me tell you a little bit about where I'm coming from. I recently started my career as a general surgeon in the military. As you can imagine, I have leadership issues from the medical side as well as the military side of things. I'm still learning a lot of military leadership skills, and your podcast has given me some really good tips. When I was the interim supervisor for my department, I had two co-workers that had about 15 to 20 years of experience over me. Well, that kind of relates back to one of the previous questions about inheriting a leadership team. I've been there, done that. I understand what it means to inherit people that have a lot more experience than you and usually are a lot older than you. My tough leadership question is how do I tell them that they need to fix their attitude because no one wants to work with them and that they are not making sound judgment calls, even when it comes to surgery? Wow. Great, great question. Now, one thing you said is that you were the interim supervisor for the department. Now, that alone is a problem because they know you're not going to be around long term. And interim 
supervisors or interim CEOs don't ever have a ton of authority to really make deep change and to get the full respect of the people that report to them because people just know you're a lame duck, you're transitional. But having said that, I know the military is a tough place for leadership uh, because you probably can't hold over people the possibility of firing them. It's a probably a lot like the educational world, right? I've learned that uh, there is so much uh, leadership incompetence in the educational world. And a lot of it has to do with those old paradigms of tenure where you just you took an act of Congress to fire somebody and the process is so cumbersome. So you can't hold that over people's heads that, you know, if you don't do a good job, we're going to get somebody else. That's true in the military, and it's true in the educational world. Well, first of all, I, w- I would tell them the truth and ask them if they even care. Truth works. Attitude is everything, in my opinion, and you need to talk to them about their attitude. And, you know, now it could be that when you talk to them, they're going to say, you know what, we don't care. And, you know, you, you don't know anything. You're the brand new guy. You're not even our leader. You're just the interim supervisor. So they may just blow it back in your face, in which case I don't think there's anything you can do. But I would talk to them and try to reason with them and let them know how they're coming across and try to say, look, you know, do you guys care about your surgeries and and your reputation as gifted leaders? And and, um, if you care, this is how you're coming across. Now, I always say you should recruit for attitude and train for skill. It doesn't work the other way around. You can't recruit for skill and train for attitude. Attitude is everything, in my opinion. If possible, get them off the bus if they're not willing to change. But it sounds to me like for you in this military interim leadership situation, that's not an option. So all I can say is, you know, try to be their partner and reason with them and just say, you know, maybe nobody's ever told you how you're coming across. But you know what? I'm going to just take the courage and and step into the danger zone. And I would recommend you might want to listen to my podcast calling Care Enough to Confront. Okay, we're coming down the the uh, we've we've gone past third base and we're almost home. Final question that I just received, uh, and actually it came from my father-in-law, who's uh, 85 years old, former pastor, retired in Arizona, great great man of God. Uh, hey, Dad, just a shout out to you. My own father died. Wow, I just realized last night I found my father's resume that he wrote in 1980. My father has been gone for 30 years this year. I really miss my dad. My children never got to know my father, and I was sharing with my youngest son, Andrew, uh, who's now 26, my dad's resume. My dad was a rocket engineer, rocket scientist, uh, worked on the Apollo program, and it was really fun just uh, reminiscing about my dad. I miss him so much. But dad, Mark Bubeck, I love you so much, and I'm glad that God has allowed me to have you all these 30 years as my my dad. Here's his question, the last one. What's the best way to get a fresh start when you plateau and you don't see your future path of progress? I recommend you listen to podcasts 15 and 19, uh, where where I interviewed a couple of great leaders that I respect so much who've both gone through that journey of plateauing and not seeing a future path. Uh, Peter Pendell and David Beavers, two very different stories. Peter Pendell is a senior pastor who went into a huge plateau and burnout and found a way to reignite his heart. That's podcast 15. And then podcast number 19 with David Beavers, who 
was also began his career in ministry. He and I were together in seminary many years ago, and uh, he lost his family, lost his marriage, lost everything, and rebuilt his life uh, from the bottom up into a very successful life. And I really respect David and uh, both of those podcasts are, are amazing stories of bouncing back and reviving a dead heart. But let me give you a couple little tips in closing of how you can get out of a plateau when you don't see the future. Number one, ask for a sabbatical. Number two, go to a new position and start over. Maybe you're just burned out. That's what happened to me. I get it. And again, necessary endings might be just the book for you. Number three, get around people that can help you, that inspire you. Number four, consider going to a counselor. Maybe you just need some help with your heart and figuring out your future. Number five, go to some conferences that just inspire you, like the Willow Creek Leadership Summit that happens every August uh, all over America, all over the world, actually. Some Go to a great conference that sort of reignites the fire within you. And finally, number six, ask God to stir your heart with freshness. Hey, I hope you've enjoyed these uh, answers to the top 10 thorny leadership questions that I received. And if you have some questions, send them to me because I'm going to probably do another one of these shows in about two or three months. So let me hear your thorny questions and it will be my delight to answer them. If you enjoy my podcast, would you go to hansfenzel.com slash love it and you can send out a pre-written tweet to your Twitter followers or just tweet about my podcast and let people know. Also, if you could give me a great rating in iTunes, that would help me uh, not build up my ego. It will help get the word out to more listeners about the Leadership Answer Man. Thank you so much. This has been Hans Finzel. Thank you for listening to the Leadership Answer Man. Remember that leaders make great things happen. We can always take our leadership to the next level. I hope you keep listening and learning and that you go out there this week and make a difference with your leadership.